welcome to the eighth in our series of COVID-19 podcasts. The topic of this podcast is the law, looking at its role for encephalitis patients and families and discussing the law in a pandemic world. So I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Anne Cassidy from Moore Barlow, a national legal firm who are one of our four legal partners. I've known Anne for many years and I'm so pleased that she's agreed to join me for this little chat. So welcome Anne. Thank you. Thank you, Ava. Um, Anne, I want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your background, because I understand you're both a medical doctor and a lawyer. I am. Uh, when I was at school, uh, there was uh, an assumption that if you were a girl and good at science, you would be a doctor. Um, and I went along with that. It seemed a perfectly good idea. Uh, so I came to London uh, to train at St. Thomas's Hospital. Um, that was wildly exciting because I come from quite a small town and to be in central London was marvellous. Um, after I qualified, I worked at St. Thomas, St. Thomas's and at the Medway Hospital in Kent. Uh, then I decided to change career. So I did some locum jobs to save up to pay for my law training. Uh, went to Manchester Polytechnic, which was enormous fun. Uh, then I came back to London to do my legal apprenticeship at a firm in Westminster. Um, quite quickly specialised in clinical negligence work. Spent the first half of my legal career advising the NHS. And then 15 years ago now, moved to more Barlow, where I do work representing patients and their families. Oh, wow. So um, I'm curious, what made you uh, decide to move from medicine to the law? What, what was the catalyst for that? So th there were a number of reasons, uh, all very individual to me. And uh, important to remember, this was all a long time ago. Uh, I was very young. Um, I was a very junior doctor, so I didn't really have very much perspective. Um, but at my very junior level, um, I didn't find medicine as interesting or as scientific as I thought it might be. Um, and then my dad died. Uh, he died on a, a coronary care unit. Um, and in a rather teenage way, even though I was in my early 20s, that caused me to, uh, to question, you know, what, what is the point of it all? Um, as I say, quite quite teenage. Um, and then another element of it was that I wasn't entirely comfortable with the power dynamic. Um, I think things have changed a lot, but in the 1980s, medicine was quite patriarchal and there was something of, or I felt an assumption, uh, or uh, I felt a pressure to be more certain about things with patients uh, than I thought I sensibly could be, given how junior I was and how uncertain so much of life is. Um, and, and I wasn't uh, at all comfortable with that. Uh, so those reasons came together and made me think that I wasn't going to be very happy um, in medicine and I needed a, a, a different career. So I thought about being a shoemaker because uh, that was quite a fashionable thing to think about in the 1980s. 
and I do like making things and I do like shoes. Um, but I, uh, I read a book about medical law and then I started to read some of the judgments that were discussed in that book. And I found it very appealing the way that judges use uh, the same quite basic common sense principles in different circumstances uh, to come to fair decisions about things. It felt that felt quite natural and intuitive. And I thought I would be more comfortable in that environment where people have made a system of rules that govern their responsibilities towards each other. And that, that for me, that might be more fun than being pushed around by heart disease or viruses. Um, and just that I'd be more comfortable perhaps in the legal environment. So I'm, I'm guessing from this then, just from talking to you, that you've probably never regretted this move to the law. Uh, no, so it was very strange at first because I missed the practical aspects of medicine. Um, I, I enjoyed doing minor surgery and I enjoyed um, lumbar punctures and chest strains and central lines. And at first it felt very strange just to be sitting and thinking and writing letters. So I missed the practicality of medicine. Um, other than that, the only serious regret uh, that I've had has been quite recently um, at the start of the pandemic, uh, then it felt very strange not to be on the front line in a hospital. Um, uh, I, there, are, there are two other doctors in my team and a, an ITU sister. Um, and I think we all felt that, because um, and it sounds a bit cheesy, but you, you never, you, you don't forget the kind of, uh, the, the special nature of working in a team in a hospital setting. And it, it did feel odd and still does to some extent not to be in a hospital trying to be useful. Mm, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, are there any notable cases that you've been involved in or perhaps one where you felt that you've really made a, a difference? I suppose from a purely legal perspective, the most notable case I've been involved in is one called Belitho, uh, in which I act for the Defendant Health Authority and we won in the Court of Appeal. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure people always realise that in medical cases, it's not lawyers saying uh, the treatment fell below a minimum proper standard, which is what negligent means. It's independent doctors who work for the NHS and uh, know exactly how difficult the job is. A lawyer can't bring a claim uh, on a client's behalf unless the medical experts say that, uh, that no reasonable GP practice, no reasonable hospital team would have done what the defendant did. Um, and if the medical evidence establishes that there are different schools of thought about what it would have been proper to do, and if those schools of thought are reasonable schools of thought, um, a judge can't choose between them, uh, can't prefer one to another, and so uh, the claim will fail. The importance of the Belitho case uh, was the Court of Appeal and then subsequently the House of Lords uh, confirmed that uh, in, the, in, in the very rare case uh, where 
medical experts are seeking to defend a school of medical thought that turns out to be illogical uh, when you examine it closely, uh, then it will be the judge rather than the doctors um, who is entitled to have the last say on the standard of care and whether or not it was appropriate. Uh, so that, that's legally uh, the, the most significant case I've been involved in, I think. Obviously, every case, uh, uh, in every case, there's a particular satisfaction where you've secured uh, the resources that someone needs to uh, try and get their, their quality of life back on track after an injury. Um, and I think, uh, so I suppose one of, the, one of the best things about having been having done this work for as long as I have is, is the changes in practice that you see that I think are partly related uh, to the positive effects of litigation and lesson learning in the system. Um, when 10 years ago, when I first started doing encephalitis cases, um, it would not be uncommon to see a delay of a week or more in starting acyclovir uh, someone presented with herpes simplex encephalitis. Um, and over the last 10 years, uh, the presentation to treatment interval has got shorter and shorter. Uh, now, thankfully, it's really quite unusual to see any delay of more than 48 hours. Yeah. Um, and I think it's perfectly, uh, you know, it's not, not, uh, not over, overly optimistic to think that uh, that, that soon uh, claims based on delayed treatment of viral encephalitis will be a thing of the past. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's something that we've both witnessed, isn't it? Over over the you know the last uh, two decades, probably. Yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, um, it it's good to have seen those changes in policy and practice, and yeah. and I think policy and practice um, is something that we'll we'll come back to um, a bit later on as well. Um, when I'm going to ask you one or two of my more controversial um, <laughs> questions, but. Um, you know, along these same lines, you know, you know, we both know solicitors can can get a bad rap. They're often lumped in with estate agents, and um, you know, I'm sorry, Anne, but you know, <laughs> that that's the that's the reality. They can be portrayed sometimes in this almost cartoonish way as ambulance chasers, particularly on TV shows and things. We both know that that's unfair. Um, and some of the most dedicated people that I know, such as yourself, um, work in the law and are genuinely passionate uh, about helping clients to secure a better future. And as we just discussed, making these very important changes in policy and practice that make a real difference for all the patients and families that follow them. Um, have you ever had any uh, poor responses to introducing yourself as a lawyer? Yeah, I mean, uh almost universally I'd, I'd say um, and, and it was a real shock because uh, when you introduce yourself as a doctor you get very positive feedback uh, so when I first started working as a solicitor I, mean, I was I was sort of quite uh, I was quite proud and, and enthusiastic about uh, my new profession um, and it was quite a shock to uh, uh, to, to encounter such a negative response uh, now, obviously, I, I feel quite strongly that uh, that negative response is misplaced. Um, 
uh, I suppose there are all sorts of reasons why people don't want to think too carefully about the usefulness of, of lawyers. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm always impressed when people are sort of rational and intellectually honest about uh, the usefulness of having a legal system uh, that tries to keep us all safe um, according to a rule of law. Um, I think uh, there are vested, sorry, it sounds a bit paranoid, doesn't it? But there are vested interests in trying to dismiss uh, the, the legal process to some extent in general, and in particular clinical negligence as, as being some kind of ambulance chasing vampire squid type uh, endeavor. Um, but I don't think that's a particularly intellectually honest or sensible uh, perspective. Uh, lawyers are dreadful at trying to uh, displace this, uh, this perception. Um, well, maybe this podcast will uh, displace some of those perceptions. I know how lovely you are and I know how lovely um, all of the um, uh, legal partners that we've chosen to work with yes. are. And, and that's why um, we were very careful. And we'll, we'll come back to, to why it's important to choose very carefully um, when you're choosing legal um, advocacy. Um, but first of all, I thought, um, actually, just tell us a little bit about what more Barlow does and, and where their areas of expertise extend to. So I think we are at the, um, the upper end um, of medium sized law firms. Uh, we act for individuals um, and for people led businesses rather than for large companies. And we do work across quite a broad spectrum. Uh, so I have colleagues who are specialists in the law relating to schools and charities um, and employment and family issues. Uh, we have a court of protection team um, and a community um, uh, care team. Uh, my own team works closely with a major trauma team that, uh, that in turn uh, works closely with uh, NHS major trauma centres. Uh, they help people who had life-changing accidents um, and they have special emphasis on early rehabilitation to speed recovery and to reduce uh, the, the call on NHS resources. Um, we have colleagues who know all about buying and selling property of various different types. Um, and about uh, the arrangement of tax and trusts. Uh, we have a, a, a whole company and commercial department uh, that does work with businesses that, that I find quite mysterious uh, in the way I think sometimes they find our work uh, quite mysterious. So we do essentially all the work that you would, uh, all, all the things you'd expect uh, of, a, of a law firm um, apart from criminal law. Well, you know, I touched upon this um, briefly, but, you know, ju just to kind of, I guess, set out um, people's expectations of, of why we chose to have um, specific legal partners. And, and, and one of the reasons that we chose these four legal expert partners was in part, I guess, an attempt on my part and the part of the society to prevent people 
um, uh, who'd been affected by encephalitis and their families using what I um, loosely call and, and probably will be criticised for, but um, dial a lawyer. Um, you know, you sometimes, if you sat having your lunch, I, I, there was a whole period where I used to sit there and there would be these numbers popping up, you know, dial, dial a lawyer, 0800, what have you, you know, uh, no win, no fee and, and things that we'll come back to. But um, so we often see those. And, and I think what we want to do is really ensure that we were engaging legal experts who know what they're doing, whose vast years of experience could could best um, uh, advocate on behalf of people um, that have been affected by encephalitis and their families in, in the whole range of legal areas that you've just described. It might be um, medical negligence, clinical negligence. It, it might be um, education. It could be family law, as you described. Um, but what should people, um, what should someone who's looking for a, for a, a law firm, um, what should they look out for? What, what should they be looking for before hiring a law firm? Uh, so I think clear and down to earth communication um, is really important. Um, and people should be able to get an idea of that from their first approach to a solicitor. Um, there are uh, like objective um, quality marks that are relevant. Uh, so um, clinical negligence is uh, an area in which there are specialist panel accreditations for individual lawyers. Um, so the Law Society maintains a panel of clinical negligence specialists. Um, people can contact the Law Society and ask about that. And the charity Action Against Medical Accidents also maintains a, a panel of accredited solicitors. Um, and the, uh, the possession of a legal aid franchise uh, is uh, a quality mark um, that, uh, that shows that a firm has satisfied the legal aid agency that the quality of their work and organization justifies um, uh, being allowed to do work with the benefit of public funds. So their external markers, obviously uh, inclusion in a, a charity's um, a legal panel is uh, a, a very powerful endorsement. Um, so, so they're places to start. Um, but then people obviously they need to be comfortable with their solicitor. It is, uh, it is a relationship of trust and confidence and it's a relationship that's going to last for a number of years in a case of any significance. Uh, so people need to feel that uh, they're, they're, they're understood, respected uh, by someone who knows what they're doing and who will communicate with them in, um, in, uh, in a way that they're comfortable with. Um, so I would recommend, to some extent, gut instinct, um, subject to those, uh, those external quality markers. Yeah, I think I think those those are important. I'm just um, I'm reading the Secret Barrister at the moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you've read it, but um, I think you know making sure that you hire the right people to represent you is um, is extremely important. So I'm learning a bit about the law just from reading that book. 
Um, but more Barlow um, in particular, along with our other three legal partners, have got extensive experience of encephalitis. Mm -hmm. Why is that so important when pursuing a legal case involving um, a niche condition like encephalitis? Um, so encephalitis, fortunately, um, not a terribly common condition. Um, uh, so if, if a firm has a body of cases that, uh, that they, they, they've dealt with, um, they will know the issues that are going to be involved in demonstrating that, uh, that the outcome from the condition uh, is tragically worse than it would have been with treatment of a proper standard. Um, so they will know the experts um, who can sensibly be instructed to give authoritative opinions. Uh, they will understand the medical literature that the experts will be depending will be depending on. They can follow the medical literature, uh, which is fast changing, which you will know yourself, Ava, because you contributed to it. Um, if uh, if a firm is doing a uh, you know has a track record of encephalitis cases and is acting for a number of clients affected by it, they'll be able to afford to invest the uh, the, the time in attending conferences, so the excellent professional meetings that the society organises, um, or um, last year was a brilliant meeting at the Royal Society of Medicine about the changing interface between neurology and psychiatry. Um, and because our team uh, does a lot of work to which that discussion is relevant, um, we can go to that and um, and in in any clinical negligence case, um, understanding of the the issues um, and the ability to present them clearly and to properly assess uh, the arguments that may be on. Uh, on the other side of, uh, as it were, is that understanding that allows you to know what a good result would be for your client and to achieve it. Um, and the, uh, the, the clients that we're dealing with, so their injury uh, is uh, often quite subtle. Um, so it's, it's a different situation from the more obvious one where someone may have lost a leg Mm -hmm. uh, lost their sight. Um, so uh, sensitivity to the subtle effects of cognitive and behavioural changes um, I think is quite important to uh, properly to present the way in which um, the outcome of an illness has, has affected someone and the needs that the, that, that outcome has generated. Mm. I think that's a really important point. It's those hidden disabilities, isn't it, that you're, um, you know, fighting um, for justice in. And, 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 you know, that's often an area where a lot of disagreement can occur. Um, in many cases, you know, a starting point often is to try and encourage people to resolve their medical problems by engaging with their PALS service, which is usually found at their local hospital. But can you just explain briefly how litigation is different to pursuing a complaint via PALS or via um, a chief executive at a health trust? Yeah, uh, so, so we would always encourage people to use the, the complaints process to 
Um, but, uh, but unfortunately, the bottom line is that if, if someone has been seriously avoidably injured um, and if they need funds to cope with the consequences of that injury, uh, to pay for care, to replace lost income, the only route to securing that funding is through litigation. Um, the complaints procedure, if it is, uh, if it is well operated, which in, in many centres it is, uh, though in others less so, um, is obviously uh, really important for lessons being learned and perhaps being improved. Uh, but for the individual who's already suffered an injury, it, it, it cannot produce any, uh, any funding to address the problems that that injury has caused. That, yeah. That's the basic difference. Yeah, yeah no, that's important. Um, I think I'd probably be right in saying that many of our members have probably never had calls to speak to um, a solicitor. And, and sometimes when we talk to people, uh, sometimes if, even if they feel that they may have a case, they feel a bit apprehensive. They feel um, as if it's a, it's a bit of a daunting prospect. Um, and so I thought it might be useful to just explore with you a little bit, you know, what can people expect when they, when they call up one of our four legal partners? If, for example, they believe that they've got a clinical negligence case or indeed any other cause for concern. You know, you described the vast areas of law um, that more Barlow's work um, extends into. So family law, employment issues or, or problems with their children's education. When they pick up that phone, what, what can they expect, Anne? Um, well, uh, uh, a friendly and interested response. Um, uh, so, I have, I, well, I'm well, uh, well aware that people, or it is said that people feel daunted by the prospect of, of phoning a solicitor, and, and I can obviously sympathise with that, but I really would urge them not to be daunted. Um, uh, and I think, you know, f for a start, you know, how can it be more daunting to phone a solicitor than uh, the serious illness, for example, that they've just been through? Um, they've already been enormously brave. Uh, they've dealt with a, you know, a life-changing, life-threatening illness. Um, so how bad can phoning a solicitor be? Um, and solicitors are human beings and we are solicitors because we are interested in using our technical skills to solve problems and help people um, contrary perhaps to to popular perceptions but that's that is our business um, uh, analyzing problems uh, and solving them and by solving them um, uh, helping people um, so any solicitor um, will be very pleased to hear from someone who has a problem that they might be able to help with um, and they'll be very anxious to understand what the problem is um, they won't want to waste a person's time um, if they can't if they can't help so uh, there the, the should be uh, the, the first telephone conversation uh, or the first substantive telephone conversation should produce 
a discussion where someone feels that, uh, that they're being asked questions that, that to define the problem that they've got and then they're getting feedback which is telling them whether or not what they need is a lawyer um, or perhaps it's some some other professional that they need um, is it if, if they need a lawyer is it this lawyer or is it another lawyer um, but but the um, they will they, they will get a positive response of enthusiastic helpfulness about what is your problem can we help and if we can't help who can um, so I sympathize with the idea of it being a daunting prospect but really uh, people should just uh, overcome that it's not going to be daunting anymore it's, in comparison with things they will already have dealt with in their lives this is not going to be daunting um, they will uh, they, they will feel better after they've spoken to a lawyer yeah i i think we both we both uh, know and and agree that I, I i think sometimes people are so exhausted i think as well from what they've been through yeah. um that there is anxiety sometimes around you know if i if i pick up the phone to a lawyer you know is this going to be another long protracted fight that i just don't have the energy for um but i also think that um you know sometimes there are anxieties around um, or, or fears around being asked to to pay big money up front. Um, sometimes that's why people don't pick up the phone. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, yes, so that is a complete and total urban myth. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, again, I, I sympathise with people's concern, but it is uh, not one uh, that they uh, they they need have um, uh, so I've now been in practice for 30 years and in that 30 years I have not once had any um, uh, argument uh, concern or discussion with a client about legal costs um, as I say when, when someone phones a lawyer uh, the first thing will be to the lawyer will want to find out if they can help um, and uh, any reputable lawyer will uh, do that work without any obligation and for free. Um, so once the lawyer has worked out whether this is something that they can or that they can indeed help with, then the next issue will be, well, um, what, what will the appropriate funding mechanism be? Um, and that uh, will be either legal aid, pre-existing insurance, um, or um, a conditional fee agreement, which is uh, what is usually referred to as a, a no-win, no-fee agreement. Now, um, none of those, uh, those methods uh, involve uh, any upfront payment of any kind. In the olden days, um, we used to ask people who could afford it to pay 50 pounds to get the records uh, because people holding relevant records were entitled to charge £50 to release copies of them and we wanted to review the records to make sure that we really could help um, and if people could afford it we would ask them to pay that £50. These days we don't need to do that because records are, are now disclosed for free. Um, so then the case goes ahead um, if the case is successful and damages are won, then people's legal costs, the bulk of people's legal costs will be paid by the defendant on top of 
the damages that have been recovered. Uh, in circumstances where there's going to be any extra charge, additional to what the defendant is paying towards legal costs, uh, those deductions, uh, those payments out of people's damages will have been explained um, at the outset uh, in detail and people will have been updated as the, as the case goes along. So when the end of the case comes, they, they will uh, not be taken by surprise in circumstances where there are uh, payments to be made out of their damages. Um, there are statutory caps on charges that can be made. Um, most firms have voluntary caps as well. Um, and the whole process is subject to the oversight of the court. So I would strongly emphasise that there is no financial risk of any kind involved in consulting a clinical negligence solicitor. Um, so people really shouldn't cut off their noses or shoot themselves in the feet if, if, if they think they uh, if they think they, they have an issue that, that, that a, a, a clinical negligence solicitor might be able to help them with, they should uh, simply ask. Oh, that's really reassuring. I think another area as well in our experience at the Encephalitis Society sometimes where there's a bit of misunderstanding um, is around the statute of limitations. And I just wondered if you could explain what that is and what people should be aware of. Yeah. So, um, so the, the starting principle on that is that it's not fair for someone to be faced with a claim uh, years after the event uh, when they might not have the records or the memories that they need to defend themselves properly. Um, if the person making the claim could reasonably have notified them of it much earlier. Um, so that's the reason that there is a statute of limitations. Uh, the, uh, the other side of that principle of fairness is that if, uh, if someone has a brain injury, for example, and lacks mental capacity, uh, then it's not fair uh, for there to be any time limit uh, imposed on, on them, because that would leave them um, dependent on, on others who might not be in a situation to provide the assistance that they need if, they, you know, if their parents or partner just doesn't uh, you know, realise that uh, that legal legal help would be appropriate. So, so that's that's the starting point. Um, children are deemed not to have capacity. So, for children, there is no time limit uh, until they reach their eighteenth birthday. After that, it is three years. So, three years from the age of eighteen, and three years for adults uh, who have mental capacity. The three years start uh, from the date that someone first either suspects or should sensibly have suspected that the injury that they're concerned about uh, is related to the treatment they've received. Um, and the three years, what you have to do within the three years is to start formal court proceedings by assuming a claim form. Um, Courts have uh, a discretion to set aside the three-year time limit. Um, 
that's not an, not an entirely straightforward process and it's all about the balance of fairness between the claimant and the defendant. So the summary on limitation is that if people think uh, they may wish to pursue a claim, they should take legal advice as early as possible. Uh, but if people are concerned about something that happened more than three years ago, they shouldn't give up all hope at that point and think it's, there's no, that there's no, uh, no point in asking the solicitor, they should still consult because it may be um, that the circumstances are such that, uh, that one can fairly say the three years uh, didn't start at the time that the injury happened because the knowledge that uh, someone had wasn't sufficient to trigger uh, the, the, the three year time limit starting. That's really reassuring um, to know. Um, one of my other questions, just we're, we're getting towards the end of this podcast now, is um, you wrote an interesting article um, with what I consider a, a, a slightly controversial um, title. It was called, How Can You Sue the NHS When It Is Saving the Nation? And I think that's a question at the moment that will resonate with many people in this pandemic world that we're currently inhabiting. What, what is your view on this? What, what really were you saying in, the, in this article? Um, so I'm saying that, uh, that, that our, our legal system is uh, part of the civilised fabric of our society. Um, in an ideal world, um, it might be that we would all prefer to have uh, a, a system of no-fault compensation where anyone who, uh, who has an extra difficulty of any kind is fully supported in coping with that difficulty and maximising their quality of life um, out of uh, our, our shared funds. But that would be that that's a system that would be very expensive to operate um, and we have the, the our, our position in society is that uh, that that's too expensive for us um, it would involve much higher taxation so the system that we have says that if uh, if you lose uh, your ability to earn your own living and look after, <clears throat> excuse me, to look after yourself because you have, someone has injured you, um, then uh, we have the, 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 the system of redress uh, that, uh, that in, in, in narrowly defined circumstances will entitle you to the money that you need to try and get your life back on track and to put you in the position that you would have been before the injury happened. Um, that, now as it happens, the, um, uh, where the injury is the result of medical treatment uh, provided by the NHS, uh, the compensation comes from, from taxpayer funds. Um, but that is just another element of the arrangements that we've made between us to look after each other and to support each other through difficult times. 
Um, it's no different from the furlough scheme, um, from uh, the steps that we're taking in terms of pooling our resources to look after everyone in the current crisis um, and to, uh, to keep everyone safe. Um, so, uh, so again, although on one hand I can understand the instinctive um, recoiling from in any way inconveniencing the NHS, which is obviously a you know a jewel in our in uh, uh, in, in 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 the crown of our our arrangements. Um, you know, I, I've seen, uh, so I've seen the system from all sides. I, I've been a doctor. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've advised uh, doctors and hospital trusts that, who have uh, faced claims. Um, and I think uh, everyone who, every thoughtful person who has been involved in the system is pleased to know that there is this safety net that is there when things go wrong. Everyone, you know, we, the society's work is, 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 is helping to prevent things from going wrong. Um, all doctors are responding very positively to the work of the society and other similar organizations. Um, you know, lots and lots of different people are making sterling efforts to improve patient safety. But whenever human beings try and do something complicated and, and keep on, you know, increasing their ambition about what they can achieve from the complicated stuff they're doing, inevitably there are going to be times when uh, things don't go as everyone would have hoped. Uh, there'll be system failures, a series of, uh, of small problems taken together will produce a result that overall just fell below the standard that everyone want to hold themselves to. And then because it's medicine, uh, from time to time, real people will suffer real injury because of that. And then surely it is a comfort to all involved that we do have this mechanism um, of, uh, uh, of our, our, our system of civil liability um, which says that, that that money will be provided to do what it can do to restore that person to the quality of life that they had before the injury um, and to give their their family and their loved ones um, the sense of security that uh, that they're safe um, I you know if, if people think about it just you know in, in terms of them their children their parents their 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 wife their partner their you know, they're, they're, they're friends, they're loved people. Um, I, I think it becomes difficult to see really that the, the, the litigation, keeping people safe, learning lessons, trying to do better in future, how, how can that be a negative thing rather than something that, that basically we're all pleased and proud that we've got and that we're going to operate calmly um, non-confrontationally um, in order to get just just sensible just safe results that help people they help the, the person who's been injured they help the clinicians um, who've been trying to help to to to, to treat that person 
and who, you know, very sadly have seen the thing go pear-shaped, everyone is happier. Uh, you know, it's quite, uh, yeah, it's difficult to see why, why if people are honest with themselves, there's, there's, a, there's any problem of any kind with that. Yeah, I think you make some important points. And I think one or two that stood out for me, whilst we all, we all, um, there are bad apples in the world and, um, you know, bad apple doctors or physicians or, uh, you know, we, we hear and we see about these uh, random individuals on, on the news um, who in some cases have done appalling things. But in most cases, um, these these are often and you use the word, you know, system failures. And I, I think quite often it's not one individual um, who's who's done a bad thing knowingly. That isn't what this is about. This is often, as you said, you know, a whole domino effect of things that went wrong and an individual was was um, unfortunately injured. Um, and I, I think that that's um, such an important um, such an important point for people to, to remember. And I think also uh, that point that we talked about earlier, you know, when you talk to often, and I'm sure you will have heard it many, many times, Anne, when you talk to patients and families, they'll often say to me, I'm not bothered about the money. I just don't want this to happen to anybody else. And, and so that comes to the important point that we touched upon earlier about um, uh, litigation, being able to influence changes in, in policy and practice. So yeah. I think that's important. Um, I, I, yes, I, I think it, it is part, uh, it is one of the ways uh, in which lessons are learned. It's one of the driving forces. Um, we always, uh, so we as claim representatives, we, we, we make it as clear as, as we possibly can where we think the, the problem's arisen. Um, we uh, we interact with other organisations like the the um, uh, the healthcare safety investigation branch um, to uh, to try and extrapolate from the local lesson of the of our individual case to a more general lesson that can be learned to keep people safe um, and. Uh, the same happens uh, uh, on the defendant side of the debate, as it were. Um, NHS Resolution is, is looking at uh, circumstances that have led to litigation and doing its best to feed back to trusts about um, uh, areas where systems are weak and can be improved. Um, uh, money is uh, something that uh, is noticed by people. Um, and so an expensive litigation uh, is a driver to change. I mean, obviously it's much better if uh, lessons can be learned with, without any expense being incurred. Um, but in the real world, it, uh, people are a lot better, for example, at interpreting CTG traces during labour than they used to be. Um, and, uh, and, and unfortunately, it is, it is the cost of obstetric brain injury cases, I think, as much as the, the fact that, 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 that children are brain injured, uh, that has driven that improvement in... Um, in practice so we're all part of a, a, a jigsaw 
different skills, different perspectives that fit together, uh, but with, uh, with the same aim of uh, making things better. Um, and it, you know, it, it is not sensible to, uh, to, to demonize any part of the system or to, uh, to be uh, confrontational about things. Um, we just need to be working together, uh, each playing our, our roles in this, this knitted together system properly and fairly um, and gradually uh, step by step improving things. Well, absolutely. I think those are very sensible um, words um, on which to begin to bring this um, interview to a close. I've been absolutely fascinated to talk to you over the last hour. Um, but before I do draw it to a close with some um, final comments from me, is there anything else that you'd like viewers of this podcast to know or that you'd like to say before we finish up? Um, no, um, I feel as if I've, <laughs> as if I've said uh, lots and lots of things um, and rambled on a lot. Um, uh, so, so I think lawyers are just dreadful at, uh, at conveying it. Uh, but uh, I would like people to, uh, if they possibly can, just to take a leap of faith and believe that uh, lawyers are not terrifying, uh, they're not vampire squids, um, and uh, we, we there are circumstances in which we are the, exactly the people who can provide practical help, um, and we're good at identifying those circumstances, um, and where we can help, we, uh, we really want we really want to um so uh yeah take a leap of faith um hopefully you don't have a problem that uh that might need a lawyer but if you do just uh just 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 engage with one and uh perhaps the problem will then be shared and solved um yeah Feels like wise words to finish on, taking a leap of faith. Well, look, we're deeply grateful to you for taking the time out to speak to me. Um, I know how very busy you are. Um, thank you so much for the many encephalitis cases that you've handled um, over the years. I know that most of them um, uh, never end a trial. It's always sorted out um, before, um, which I think is a relief for the patients and their families. Um, we do want to reassure any viewers uh, that the Encephalitis Society services are continue unaffected during this challenging time. So if you need any support or information, our teams remain at your service. Please go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online. And if you want uh, any more information around accessing any of our four legal partners uh, or any information, then go to encephalitis.info forward slash legal hyphen advice and if you've enjoyed this podcast and you can support our work during this difficult time then it's forward slash donate just for me to finish up and just to say thank you again and, and stay safe everybody mm -hmm.